Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the In Technology podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, I'm very fortunate to have with me today Allison Dutman. For what that means, we're going to talk about neurotechnology, nanotechnology, and molecular manufacturing. She is CEO of Foresight Institute, and she is a pretty smart cookie. She's got a master's in philosophy and public policy from the London School of Economics and graduated summa cum laude there. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you describe what Foresight Institute does? I know it was founded quite a while ago in 86 or 87, but what is the goal? So we're one of the longest standing science and tech nonprofits that is trying to advance technologies for the long-term benefit of life. And so we were founded on a long-term vision of molecular nanotechnology, but from the very early ages, it always had kind of a cacophony of other technologies in the mix, including AI, implications for longevity in biotech, brain-computer interfaces, and in general, newer technology. It has vast implications for space technologies if we would ever, ever actually get um, to advanced molecular nanotechnology and so forth. And so because it had this sweeping focus on a variety of different technologies over the years, we've taken the molecular nanotechnology angle and then also spun out individual projects that focus on the other technologies as well. And the way that we usually support projects in that space is through a series of virtual seminars in each of these categories, then a series of in-person workshops where we bring top people in the field together to work on the long-term goals of these technologies for better futures that they usually don't have another venue to collaborate on because that's not really what normal institutions, I guess, are set out to do very much. And then we also have prizes and fellowships in these categories. I think we're trying to provide this extra space where people can collaborate on these more long-term visions of technologies and how they can actually help humanity flourish. So I, I want to just take a moment too. So on this sort of, you've said, you know, benefit of life or long-term goals or helping humanity flourish, um, they sound really good. But I do want to ask, you know, what do you mean by that? What is positive for you? What is beneficial for you? <laughs> well, that is a very big question. Okay. Um, I've studied philosophy before, and I can safely say that uh, within thousands of years of philosophy, people have not figured out what <laughs> the good is, or at least they have not agreed on what that is. And so what we are trying to hold space for is technology development that leads to worlds that can be assessed as better by many individuals. And so we're not trying to really drive down really one narrative, but we're really trying to give space where like lots of different positive futures can thrive. And so where really individuals have achieved the greatest possible lives for themselves. Uh, and that also includes planetary health <laughs> and well-being, because without that, we don't really have a space to be in. And so, you know, without wanting to really narrow it down on like one, let's say, ethical framework that we follow, we're just okay. trying to get to futures through technologies that can be regarded as better by a variety of different entities. Maybe not only humans in the future, right? We may have to expand our moral horizon a little bit yeah. and also gradually incorporate non-human uh, intelligences and sentient beings into the mix. So um, it has a relatively wide focus here. Are you referencing machines or are you referencing other biological organisms that are non-human, like plants or other forms of animals? 
Well, I'm referencing both. <laughs> we are usually not great as humans to already incorporate many of the other sentient creatures that already exist around us uh, uh-huh. into our moral circle. Uh, and then I think that also at least allows the worry that we may not be really great at um, distinguishing when it's time to perhaps include uh, artificial consciousnesses into our circle of morality too. Well, I guess really quickly, what is a conscious creature? What would you define as making it conscious? I'm not a consciousness researcher, and mm-hmm. uh, and there have been so many different people that uh, are just expert in that field that can define this much better. But I think we all, even as a layperson, have an understanding okay. of what at least for us it means to be conscious, and I think it's pretty precious. And so I think preserving this very kind of like pedestrian notion yeah. of consciousness is, I think, something that uh, I think is, is is inspiring enough. Whether or not we can figure out all the kind of scientific details uh, behind it, I think we get to experience it, or at least uh, we think we do. And so that's my best bet for why it makes sense to preserve it. I, I think that's a pretty reasonable answer. Um, <laughs> so let's dive in just a little bit to some of the technology that your organization focuses on. Let's start with molecular manufacturing and nanotechnology, which are a little bit interchangeable in terms, but maybe you can tell us what those terms mean, and then we can have a conversation about them. People have been kind of like arguing and debating the correct use of the term nanotechnology, because I think nanotechnology, like as it is with other terms, for example, as AI, with the moment that they start pulling uh, interest uh, into the field, many other things get rebranded as that technology as well along the way. And that's also what we've kind of seen a little bit along the path on molecular nanotechnology. But like, I think maybe the best way to describe it is just imagine perhaps like for a second that it was really truly possible to build things from scratch so that rather than taking a default resource, like I don't know, stone or wood, and then cutting it into shape and thereby wasting much of a material in the process, imagine if you could actually build from the bottom up by assembling precisely only the types of materials necessary to build the object. And so the question is really, if resources, costs, or externalities weren't an issue, what could you build? Richard Feynman is often, I guess, like credited with really having kicked off the field of nanotechnology. And he gave the speech in 1959, I think at Caltech, where he basically said, the principles of physics, as far as I can see, do not speak against the possibility of maneuvering things atom by atom. And this is, I think, kind of like the core vision of molecular nanotechnology is really doing atomically precise manufacturing. So what kinds of things would be built? Do they span biological and non-biological? And then how do they get built? What builds them at that level? Yeah, well, um, Eric Drexler, for example, who co-founded Foresight in 1986, he wrote this book, Engines of Creation, in which he kind of envisioned a future that was defined by these engines of creation, these molecular machines that could really assemble from the bottom up very complex objects. And they were also helped by engines of design, and that was AI. So Mm -hmm. basically actually being able to look and see what we want to build and where we want to um, place individual, let's say atoms even, uh, if you uh, get really ambitious. But he basically detailed this path towards achieving atomic precision through molecular engineering. The early stages really involved kind of redesigning biology's molecular machinery. So, for example, protein molecules to really position reactive groups with atomic precision and thereby kind of turning them into these machines that are capable of constructing more complex materials. And so you build up from the bottom up, almost like 3D printing, but on a very, very tiny level. And for that thought, very long term, you could really build a variety of different either structures or eventually even other factories that could produce new factories. And I think the promise there is almost 
unbound uh, or, you know, as, as people like to call it in the early day, like, you know, you could really reach this abundant future. You know, for example, if you just imagine these devices and materials that could be designed could, for example, really improve lighting efficiency. It could promote local power generation and could really like help us meet the energy demands that we have as a planet, which are like a major big deal for the long-term future and very sustainably. Uh, we could have, for example, new water purification methods with these very, very precise materials and, you know, could really alleviate much of the water scarcity that we have today going to the medical uh, domain, develop new methods, new diagnostics, new personalized medicine, and new personalized therapy tools that could combat diseases, fight aging. I'm sure that some people have heard of the kind of term nanobot of this kind of like very tiny robot that could really clean up the inside of your bodies and remove the things that aren't working very well and like repair the bits that need repairing. And so you have a lot of promising focus areas in there if you go all the way uh, sci-fi. But I think even if we talk about space technologies, it's very difficult to make progress on uh, long-term space development exploration because it's really expensive uh, to send stuff into space. But with new types of materials that could be designed to be, for example, incredibly lightweight, you could also make progress on long-term space travel in a way that is currently really beyond our imagination, where currently, obviously, we are not yet at, but very long-term. Right. So you're envisioning something where in conjunction with AI, for example, maybe it exists in an area where like there's water scarcity to use the example you provided and it looks at the surrounding materials it has to work with or that the atoms that are near it and it decides how it could then maybe construct something to create purification in that area given the elements that are around it versus it may create something else to purify water in a different location yeah well i would it's unclear really how these long-term technologies will actually pan out because we know so little about it. And there's different like ambitiousness levels, I guess, of that technology. If you could just create machinery that was able to clean up the mess that we made, like any kind of like molecular machinery should be uh -huh. able to also clean up the mess that other molecular machineries have made. If you just look at the climate and like biodiversity and resource crisis that we have, all of this could really be helped a lot by just being able to produce better materials from the get-go that don't even cause that much of waste and externalities, but then also by cleaning up some of the mess that we, <laughs> coming to the current level of civilization, have left behind. Okay, yeah, and some of the medical advancements, just to define it in more detail, would be something like chromosome replacement therapy. I mean, you were alluding to maybe repairing certain organs, maybe if there's tissue damage or removing certain toxins, but you could even, I mean, I think in the longevity space, aren't we looking at something like using proteins to recreate what the DNA blueprint is telling it to create, as opposed to like the sort of damaged molecules that occur over time, we're actually doing replacement therapy at the chromosomal level to keep our naturally deteriorating bodies repaired and free of deterioration. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go all the way out there, and we're not there yet. But one, for example, kind of, you know, problem in longevity is that even if like, this is my assumption, even if we make all the progress that we can make, and this field has accelerated drastically, then I think it may still not be enough to get people currently alive over this kind of threshold of LEV, which is longevity escape velocity, Oof. where people currently alive can live this long life. And so one kind of plan B is cryonics. Oof. And cryonics is basically preserving your entire body or just your brain after you've died with the hope that later on, we will have the types of technologies that allow us to rethaw it without 
as much damage uh, that uh, it would prevent, you know, whatever you want to call consciousness to kind of like re-inhabit these bodies. And so the biggest problem in cryonics is that currently most of the techniques that are being used to preserve human bodies or, or just human brains are incredibly they're incredibly toxic. <laughs> and wow. so even with vitrification methods that we currently have, um, we're still causing massive damage to most of right. the cellular structures that we have in the human body. And so molecular nanotechnology is usually very much almost a necessary condition if we want to make sure that we can A, preserve folks better, but then also B, be able to potentially go in there eventually later and repair some of the damage that current existing technologies are leaving. And so that is a very, very far out case, right? Well, but it is something that would be uniquely enabled by nanotechnology because with the current technologies as we have them so far, I see little hope that, that we'll get there. And there's some criticism, I guess, in the space, but help me understand this better, that you know, AI in conjunction with nanotechnology or molecular manufacturing can then decide what to construct and autonomously go and construct it. And it can happen at such a small scale, obviously, that we may not know it's there as humans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the, you're referencing the Grey Goo scenario, I'm assuming. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think many people here probably are familiar with the paperclip maximizer scenario that has recently had quite the revival and <laughs> concerns about fears of AI. But it's basically that you'd have these self-replicating nanomachines that could eat up all the resources that we have as a human civilization, including humans <laughs> and including our biosphere. And it could happen so fast because they're self-replicating that we may not have time to intervene or even notice uh, before it's too late. Uh -huh. And, you know, this is partly a pretty out there worry based on like a misunderstanding of the types of molecular nanotechnology systems that are actually being promoted by the community. And this is this more totally free ranging okay. um, creation of these like new entities, basically. But instead, what most people in the field are arguing for and what is in fact much more pragmatic is these nanoscale factories where we could really control the input and where we could uh, exactly know what we want to manufacture. Those are like much easier to build, arguably, than these like free roaming, entirely okay. autonomous bots. And so it, this kind of like worry of a gray goo has really been resting on this misunderstanding of what the field of molecular nanotechnology is trying to do. And and there is even a case to be made that by the time that this fear became very prevalent, it was potentially being used to redirect funding from the more no. ambitious goals of molecular nanotechnology to the more near-term stuff that fear is, you know, we can never uh, absolutely, I think, negate it. But there were some political motivations. Then obviously, like anything that sounds like a new threat is also ex incredibly exciting for the media. Okay. So that definitely played a role, I think, uh, as well. I don't see it becoming a near-term concern anytime soon. Especially when it gets a name like Grey Goo. Yeah, of course. <laughs> that, that definitely helps. So um, can we talk about neurotechnology a little bit? Yeah, well, again, it's a very, very broad field and spans all the way from neuroscience to like uh, specific devices that are currently being created. But what we are focusing on, at least at Foresight, or the types of new technology that we're interested in, is looking beyond what's currently available to the types of te neurotechnology that could actually help us cure many of the cognitive diseases that we're really worried about, um, but then also allow us to really expand our capabilities and potentially even have something like brain-computer interfaces that would uh -huh. allow us to much better interact with the real world that is already very computer-mediated, uh -huh. um, but then also potentially eventually do things that are much more out there, such as like whole brain emulations, which obviously as a term that... Many people, if they do know it, probably they know it from sci-fi. Uh -huh. uh, but I actually do think that there's some paths to get there that are pretty interesting right now. So can you describe what whole brain emulation is? 
uh, yeah, Holbein emulation is basically a potential future state of a technology where you can really emulate an entire brain in a computer. I think in the wake of like concerns around these artificial intelligences that don't share our hardware, don't share our evolutionary environment in which they were able to gradually learn the values that we hold, it will be very difficult to align these AIs with human values. And so one strand that people have become a little bit more excited about is really looking at whole brain emulation as a path or as a safety hatch for artificial general intelligence. Because the idea is that if it was possible to emulate um, a human brain in a computer, and that is a very, very, very big goal, then at least we have some reason to believe that it's more easy to align those human brain emulations uh, with our current human values than it would be for an entirely uh, external AI. And, you know, we would also have better uh, ways to interface with AIs that we create and actually get smarter ourselves and potentially would be able to run on the incredible speeds that many of the computing programs are currently running and so forth. So there has definitely been like a recent uptake in interest in the field. Nevertheless, I should also say that uh, human brain emulations I would say we won't get there anytime very soon. So I think without significant funding and significant interdisciplinary collaboration, it is still very much like a high-hanging fruit, let's say, uh, within the newer technology space. But it would be running on circuits, not biological material. Is that correct? So here you're getting into the long-term possibilities of having biological computing. Uh There are a few companies and labs that are working on biological computing. Um, Cortical Labs, for example, is an interesting one. And one could imagine that potentially the hardware could even be biological in the future. So yeah, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. We're talking about with things like Neuralink, right? Is, Is another kind of common reference in neurotech space and looking at stimulating the brain, stimulating brain function, uh, reading the brain, and then allowing for communication externally that wasn't possible otherwise. What kinds of things are being looked at in this space? There is a number of growing companies or research labs in the space that are trying to do non-invasive BCIs because they wouldn't have to be replaced. Uh Caltech is working on one and there's a few others as well. At the same time, though, I think it would be difficult to get the entire readout that you can get from the invasive ones because they just have a better reach locally. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so there are, I think, a few really interesting projects currently out there. And, you know, I'm assuming that in the future may even be like not necessarily a patchwork, but I'm just hoping that we can just develop also better technologies that can be more more non-invasive while still being invasive. Um, and I think that, yeah, there is a lot of progress in this space, but I, th- I think we still need to work on durability. We need to work on reach. We need to really work on readouts. I think it would be great if there was more kind of collaboration between individual companies and what they can do uh, currently in terms of readouts and really like trying to have a bit more of an open access to pushing some of the progress along. So what about this concept of reading versus writing when you're talking about brain-computer interface? What is writing? (laughs) Well, it would really involve like actually being able to kind of communicate your thoughts. (laughs) And it's really early stages in that it's extremely difficult to be doing something that can be reliably upheld in that way. Where I was trying to head with that is like reading whether somebody intends, I want strawberry juice right now or something, right? As opposed to grape juice or whatever. And you're able to actually read that when a person can't speak or communicate any other way. That's sort of the inside out. You're trying to understand from the outside what's happening on the inside. What about the reverse of that? What about the outside in where you're sort of implanting information or potentially implanting thoughts? And it's 
it is written about. It's not like that so far out there concept right now. So help me understand where are we with that and what kinds of things are we able to implant? Well, I mean, there was a recent paper that has made quite the way from, I think, Yu Takagi and Shinji Nishimoto. And they basically used generative AI models uh-huh. to recreate images from human brain activity that relatively well uh, matched with what the human subjects were actually looking at in that scenario. There's like a really fantastic paper out there. It's, it's rather terrifying if you look at the uh, at the individual depictions. And then they were able to use generative AI to actually really give a pretty good understanding of what the person was actually looking at. And so it was this kind of reverse engineering. And so a fear for that, at least, is that this technology in the hands of the wrong people could really lead to like massive infringements on our privacy. Like I think the, the place where we really most have privacy in currently still is, is our mind. On the long run, people worry about something like mind crimes. And there's been some research at FHI that, you know, was looking at these digital minds and like the types of kind of crimes that you can intrude on minds if you actually had an ability to change thoughts, to change the environments in which they occur and to really engineer experiences for people is, I think, pretty massive because at the end, the mind is the filter through which we perceive everything else in the world. And if one tinkers with that filter, I think it's that is probably kind of like one of the worst crimes that one could possibly commit. <laughs> very, very interesting. So w- one of the things is, you know, this sort of cross-section, I guess, of neurotechnology and nanotechnology, I-, I think is, we used to say data is the new oil, but at this point, you know, we've got the data. We have a lot of data <laughs> and AI is working hard on um, the ability to be able to process that data and then generate predictions and insights from that data. One of the things we have a lot of data on is biological data um, that people, myself included, provide, you know, willingly for the benefit of a dashboard back to myself on how well I'm doing. And I know that there's, you know, data anonymization and other techniques to separate my my personal identity from the biological data that I'm submitting. But a lot of that data ends up in the cloud. And there's really only, you know, I can count on my two hands, sort of the number of hyperscaler clouds that probably contain vast quantities of information on human biometric data. So I don't know that I have a great question to formulate. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that when at the same time we're approaching things like molecular manufacturing and we're approaching things like um, neurotechnology. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of the reason why Foresight has so many different focus areas, including biotechnology, molecular nanotechnology, decentralized computing space, neurotech, is because we think that progress will occur at the intersection. And I think we see that a lot right now, at least in terms of potential in this longevity space that you just mentioned. There has been an incredible progress recently in the field of decentralized privacy preserving machine learning. And there's wonderful work at Open Mind. And we had a fellow, Georges Cases, um, who was looking at privacy preserving uh, machine learning for medical and health data. And I think that there is such a big opportunity for us to learn from the type of data that is the most sensitive to us. And there's usually financial data or healthcare data. But at the same time, it also has crazy privacy restrictions for good reasons, because it is extremely sensitive and could also expose our family if not dealt with correctly. But we do see in the computing realm now a lot of really wonderful tools like these privacy preserving machine learning tools that could really be used, I think, to leverage these kind of like data things, you know. And so you could imagine, for example, like encrypting the data at the source and only letting metadata through that is still significant enough for 
specific machine learning algorithms to make sense of and to kind of give you back useful information. And so without you necessarily having to share uh, their private data out, right. people are making progress on this. It's still relatively cost ineffective as compared right. to like large normal algorithmic approaches. But the problem is that usually these approaches don't really have a chance to go against the existing uh-huh. big data trained AI models. But in a space like healthcare, where we literally cannot share our data, uh-huh. uh, they have a comparative advantage because they're the only ones who can actually properly make use of this data. Um, and so I think it's a really exciting space to be looking at. Okay, and I'll take it for granted that we'll get there on personal privacy preserving data. And we have we do have policies and laws in place and they're not universal, but you know, there's everybody kind of recognizes that. But what about the what about the problem where we have data from a vast swath of humanity on exactly how our biology functions that's now sitting in the hands of essentially the few, right? The the sort of giant clouds, right? That can actually hold the literal quantity, sheer quantity of data that exists on this front. So who has access to that data? Because I know you work on having the benefits not only rest in the hands of the few. So how do we tackle that kind of thing? Well, for many of the type of healthcare data, actually, you are not allowed to share it um, broadly. Um, We have pretty strict regulations on this. And that's also the kind of data that would be very useful for us to actually make progress on longevity, because (laughs) many of the things that people currently are doing, if we were able to cross compare across what different people are already doing, we could really make big progress. So like, I think that, yes, in general, we have lots of our data in the cloud, but in specific healthcare fields that are like really sensitive, we we, we don't, we don't yet. Like hospitals are not allowed to share. Right, right, right. Right. But what about like watch data and Garmin Apple, all that stuff? I mean, that's all going to a cloud without (laughs) my name attached, but it's, you know, it exists somewhere. That's true. (laughs) I mean, we can talk about the risks associated with that, but I think if we want to talk about like new types of opportunities that could be unlocked if we actually were able to share relatively sensitive data or like mm-hmm. not share it, but actually have it either mm-hmm. homomorphically encrypted, mm-hmm. user friendship privacy, federated learning, all of these approaches mm-hmm. that are currently being explored. I think we could be doing much more than we currently do with our data. Mm-hmm. We are already arguably sharing way too much. Mm-hmm. And I think if we made progress by funding a few of these more privacy preserving solutions, because they're not far out from being actually mm-hmm. uh, applicable, then I think we could really take everything home again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we wouldn't really uh, have a need anymore to share everything to the cloud. Cryptography, unfortunately, is still a really underfunded field. So mostly being practiced in academia, there's a few individual labs and so forth. But I think with more investment in these spaces, we would have like really amazing tools at hand mm-hmm. to actually be making progress on this. And I should say that this not only holds for longevity, but the type of promise that we see in privacy preserving machine learning technologies, cryptography technologies, security technologies, and auxiliary approaches, they would also hold for AI. Like if we're worried about centralized AIs becoming too powerful by having access to this big data, then I think we should be focusing much more on these uh, decentralizing solutions that come out of the security and cryptography space because they have an ability to allow us to make sense of the data and allow individual organizations to collaborate and actually like reap the benefits of the data without actually sharing it around. And so we could perhaps compensate a bit for the Mm -hmm. normally centralizing dynamics that exist in AI. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. So disseminate it more so that we have broader access to it and therefore diminish that centralized potential power that could exist. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. It all relies on cryptography technologies. They need a lot of love these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, we just so people know, we did do a podcast on homomorphic encryption and also on um, data anonymization. So we talked with some technical experts who are working on those things if people want to get you know, a little bit more 
And I think the data anonymization one talks about differential privacy as well. Great. Allison Dudman, CEO of Foresight, thank you very much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned for the next episode of In Technology and follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.